Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13 for our study this evening, Romans 13. What did you guys think of the snow slash rain today? <laughs> Got it all today. Rain, snow, sunshine. Great to get the moisture, isn't it? So, One of the things that we're kind of working on together as a whole, as a church family, if you could kind of join me in, is we're trying to minimize distractions uh, during our time in worship and the teaching of the word. So if you can silence your phones, it's a big help. And then also, if you do need to use the restroom or go out of the sanctuary during the teaching, if you could sit towards the back on your way in. It's just human nature. You know, if you're sitting in the front and you go out, everybody just watch that long walk, that aisle. And then you come back in and they all watch and, and that, hey, you're fine, you're okay. But we're just, just as a whole, you know, at the, that would really help. And then also if you have young kids and they're starting to have a hard time and being a distraction, if you wouldn't mind uh, taking them out and sitting towards the back uh, helps because then it's not as a far walk uh, as well. So we're just trying to work on that so that when we're in the word, we can focus on on the word of God together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your love. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Uh, Lord, as it's spring break, we pray that you'd bless the kids as they're on break from school and bless families, Lord. Just allow it to be a really special time uh, with, with families. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to be in the word tonight. We pray that you would really solidify your message in our hearts and minds. Pray you'd set me aside and give me grace and strengthening in teaching your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get into the second half of Romans chapter 12, we're looking at what it means to be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. This living sacrifice is motivated on God's mercies. God's grace has been poured out upon us and we're moved to lay our lives down upon the altar of God. If you were with us last week, we talked about what our mind is, where we should put our thoughts to renew our minds, how we're to think about ourselves and think towards God, our service to the Lord, and how we're serving the Lord as part of being of the body of Christ. And now as we look into chapter 13, it continues to define what it means to be a living sacrifice. The end of chapter 12 encouraged us to leave vengeance uh, to the Lord. And so the question then is, does anyone get held accountable? And the answer is yes, that God has raised up government entities to hold people accountable when they commit evil. And so we're going to look at three topics tonight in chapter 13. We're going to look at the subject of government and submission to government, loving your neighbor, and then finally to be awake spiritually. So those will be our three themes this evening. So join me in verse 1 of chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. The emphasis there is every soul. God is calling us to submit ourselves to governing authorities. And this word submission really in our culture has almost become a bad word used in any context. To to come underneath someone's authority, our skin starts to crawl a little bit, doesn't it? I'm not going to submit to anyone and I'm not going to listen to anyone. And so when we get to a verse like this and God says, every soul be subject to governing authorities. We're like, wait a second. I don't know if that's for me. I don't know if I'm going to come underneath governing authorities. But if you look, God's a God of order, isn't he? He set up authority. Even inside of the Trinity, there's a structure, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
They're three distinct persons, but yet one completely equal. But we find the Son is always submitting to the Father. He came to do the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit's always complementing the Son. There's order inside of the family where the husband's to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And then a wife is to respect and submit to to her husband. There's order inside of the church, isn't there? Where God has raised up pastors and elders to be servant leaders inside of the church. And then also in society, God has raised up governments. And so we are to take that position of saying, I'm going to come underneath the authority of the government. Is there any exception to this? Absolutely. And it's when the government asks us to do something that's contrary to the word of God. And we see examples in scripture the book of Acts, where they're asked to not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And they say, well, we've got a choice here. We can either choose to obey God, or we can choose to obey men. We're going to obey God. But we've got to make sure when we pull out that card that it's right for us to disobey the government, that we would go to scripture and we could have chapter and verse and we could say, you know what? It's very clear in scripture that they're asking me to do something that's contrary to, to the word of God. So unless it's one of those times where to find ourselves in verse one and submitting to those governing authorities. I don't know if there's anything quite like the window that authority puts upon our character. Like if I have a hard time submitting to the authority that God has put into my life, it says something about my character. And I usually don't want to stop and listen. And I've found in my own personal experience and my observation is that when people struggle to submit underneath the authority that God has given them, life becomes a real struggle and life becomes a real challenge. One of the more important lessons for us to learn is like, okay, God, you've given me this boss. I don't really like this boss. I don't like the way this boss is doing things. And in fact, there's a better way to do the job. But are they asking you to do anything that's unbiblical, immoral, or unethical? No. Then guess what? God's going to honor you as you accept them as the authority that God has given to you. You're in school, college student, high school student. You've got a teacher, and the, the teacher's hard to deal with. Well, they're the authority that God has put into your life at that particular time. And at times, our government is difficult for us. Do I agree with every decision that our government makes? Absolutely not. You know, am I concerned about things? Absolutely. But does that get me off the hook of saying, I don't need to come underneath their authority? I need to obey unless they're asking me to do something that's contrary to God's word. Do you know, as Paul was writing this letter, what the government was in place at the time for the Church of Rome? It was the Roman Empire. Roman Empire, and by no means were they godly. By no means were they easy to deal with. They were persecuting Christians, killing Christians, and yet Paul writes to them and says, part of being a living sacrifice is you come underneath the authority that God has given and placed. For there is no authority except from God, and all the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So the source of authority is God. I mean, this is one of those big colossal statements in scripture that we have to wrestle with. There's no authority except for God. God is the one who raises up governments. He's the one that allows them to be in existence. Ultimately, he's ruling and reigning over all of the governments of the world. And they only exist because they're appointed by God. Psalm 75 tells us that position, promotion, power, 
It doesn't come from the east or from the west, but the Lord raises up whom he pleases for his purposes. We don't understand many times, God, why have you allowed this person to be in authority? But remember, Jesus Christ was crucified by the hands of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was put in a position ultimately by God where he would listen to the accusation of the Jewish people and go along with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the plan of God is accomplished in ways that we wouldn't comprehend, a a plan that we wouldn't put in motion, a government necessarily that we wouldn't choose, but God is accomplishing his purpose. God accomplished the greatest need for all of mankind while the Roman government was in place, this corrupt government. By the hand of Pontius Pilate, the Lord's bigger than all of that. All authority exists through him. So if you're in a position of authority, maybe you're in a a government position, maybe you're a police officer, maybe you're a principal of a school, maybe you have some people working underneath you at, at your employment, you can start to think, well, Well, it's because of all my work. It's because of all my effort. It's because of my talents. And ultimately, it's because of the hand of God. The Lord has given you that power. The Lord has given you that authority. And instead of it causing us to be prideful, it should cause us to be humble, to realize God's entrusted it to us and will be accountable to him. That those that are in those government positions, you know, those that are presidents and prime ministers and senators and congressmen and, and mayors, there should be a humility when they approach that. So it's two-sided. You know, there's the one side when we're under authority to realize God's the greatest authority. And the other side is if God's given you authority to realize we're accountable unto the Lord. Verse 2 Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So if we're resisting the authority that God has put in place, the government that God has has put into place, then guess what? Who are we ultimately resisting? We're resisting the Lord. It's so important for us to remember that in times when we're rubbing against authority. My issue isn't with this boss. My issue isn't with this government. My issue is with the Lord because the Lord's allowed it. He's put it into place and I'm ultimately pushing up against him. And I've often thought, I've been, as I've been reading the scriptures, is one place I don't want to be in is where I'm opposed to the Lord. I don't want God resisting me. I don't want to attempt to resist the Lord. Who does God pour out grace upon? The humble the humble person comes underneath authority. He says, okay, I wouldn't do it this way. I don't necessarily agree with this. I don't understand this. But again, it's not unbiblical. It's not immoral. So I'm not going to resist the Lord in this. You'll find that if you put yourself underneath the hand of God, that that's where the Lord will then lift up the humble. That's where the blessings will come out. You'll have much more peace in, in your life as well. No point in resisting authority because we're resisting God. In verse 3, for rulers are not a tear to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what's good, and you will have praise for the same. This is a great position to be in, where you're not being a lawbreaker, right? So you're not living in terror of being found out. There's nothing worse of, maybe today I'm going to be caught. Maybe today is when I'm going to get that knock upon the door. This even applies to speeding, right? You know, when I'm speeding, and sometimes I do speed, there's a certain tear that comes over me when Amber, who's in the passenger seat, goes, there's a cop. Ah! You know, 
But I've also had the other experience where I'm not speeding and Amber says, oh, there's a police officer and I don't have to slow down. I don't have to hit the brakes because I'm not speeding. Or I'm only going five over and I don't think they'll pull me over for five over. (laughs) There's no worries, right? I'm obeying the law. I'm not speeding. If If you cheat on your taxes and you get more back or whatever, that's great until... One day you get audited and all of a sudden, oh no, I'm going to get found out. I'm going to, to get caught. There's always going to be that temptation when it comes to the government, when it comes to authority to go, you know, I, I can get away with this. I, I'm going to, you know, shirk this just, just a little bit. But then we live in a place of terror instead of a, a place of peace. He's saying, do what's good and you'll have the praise for the same. So you can either live in terror Or you can live in a place where you're at peace and you're receiving praise for doing what is good. And if this applies to you for some reason tonight, get right. You know, if you're saying, you know, there's this part of my life where I have been unlawful and I've been justifying it. Maybe I've been putting a Christian term on it and and saying, well, I, I can do this and God's word is revealing this. Then get right with the Lord and get right with who you need to. If you need to go to the authorities and say, look, this is an area of my life where I have been hiding and I have been breaking the rules. I, I believe God will bless that and he'll honor it. Not that there won't be consequences. In verse four, for he is God's minister <clears throat> to you for good. So the one who God has put in this position to execute authority is actually God's servant. That's what this word minister means, God's servant. So if you're a police officer, I know there's some police officers here this evening. We're so thankful for your service that you do unto our community. And you're God's servant. You're God's, God's minister. And that's how we should view the police officers in our community. Is that they're the ones who the Lord has set up that he's put in place to, to keep us safe. Our military, we've got a, a really strong military presence in, in our church. Many of you have served in, in the military. That's part of Romans chapter 13. You're God's ministers that keep the peace and execute justice here on the earth so that this can be a peaceful place to live. So it's right for us to see police officers and see soldiers in that capacity, as well as police officers, it's right for you to see yourself as God's servant, to see yourself as this is who the Lord has has put into place. One of the things I hope that you get over your time here at RMC is ministry is everywhere. We think of ministers a lot of times as a pastor in a church or someone who works on a church staff. And though that's true, that's just one little sliver of ministry. You know, if you're a school teacher, you're in ministry. You know, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're you're in ministry. If you're an accountant, you're you're in ministry. If you're a police officer, you're God's minister. You're God's chosen minister to keep the peace in that particular situation. If you've been a part of countries where there's no integrity inside of the police force— and there's no integrity in part of the military service, the whole society starts to unravel, doesn't it? You, you can probably think of countries where you go, I don't want to get pulled over there, or I don't want to have a run-in with the police there because I don't think I'm going to get a fair shake in that. And not that our country is perfect, but I think that we have something that we can be very thankful for, for the integrity that we do see in a lot of these places. And Maybe something to pray about. We need believers that are in these areas of service 
So maybe you really have a heart for the military. Maybe you have a real heart for police work. Man, go for it. We, we need God's ministers in those places because when there's an absence of integrity, it's a terrible thing. So here's the role of God's minister inside a government and society, police work. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So God has lifted up governments for one of the primary purposes of keeping people safe. So when you're trying to think of what's the role of government from a biblical perspective, it's to bring this element of justice upon evil. There's an eternal judgment where in chapter 12, God said he's the avenger. He, he takes vengeance for that. But there's also justice inside of, of society. And that's why God raises up governments to, to be able to do that. So it's important for us to, to see the role of government when it's operating the right way to execute this justice and bringing and bearing the sword. Is there an appropriate time for the sword to come out to protect people? Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe you've wondered, you know, is it inside of the Christian faith to be a soldier? Absolutely. Is it inside of the Christian faith to be a police officer and use a gun to be able to protect people? Absolutely. Right here in the scriptures, God said they don't bear the sword in vain. They're going to bring the sword in justice. I think, think about what our community would be like if there was no justice. If you could just do whatever you want and you could totally get away with it. It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? We all desire to live in communities where there is a just process when crimes have been committed. So one of the reasons to obey authority is so you don't get the sword in vain. It's almost as if there's aspects of verse three and four, it's kind of scared straight. Like take a visit to the jail. The jail's real. And if you want to spend time in jail, break the law. But there's deeper motivation. The deeper motivation is the authority set up by God and our conscience in verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So you should obey the governing authorities because of wrath. It could come upon you. Also, though, because of our conscience, our conscience before God. I think this is a deeper motivation, isn't it? God, I don't I don't want to do this because I don't want to be a bad witness of Jesus Christ. And I want to pay my taxes because I want to be a good testimony of Jesus Christ. I don't think anybody enjoys paying taxes. It's that time of year. God's word is the perfect time for us. This is a good time for us to, to be having this topic. I owe some state tax this year. And you, know, you, get, you, know, you don't have to send it in until April 15th. And I'm just holding on to it. You know, thinking maybe April 14th, I'll send it in, right? Still law abiding, but it's not a check that I enjoy writing. Does anybody enjoy writing those, you know? No, not, not at all. But yet we find the Lord, the Lord putting ourselves in this place where we want to honor God in this way. I do think it's a bad testimony when Christians just flat out disobey the law. When we don't pay our taxes, when, when we're speeding, when we're caught doing crimes, and then, you know, here we've got our Jesus fish on the back of our car. Yeah, I don't know how many police officers that I've talked to that have really wrestled and been stumbled by, you know, what they've seen the body of Christ do and go, hey, the two don't match up. The, the two don't, don't, don't reconcile. And so we need to wrestle with our conscience. So verse 6, just 
clearly addresses taxes. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. So we're to pay taxes, and the purpose of taxes is to keep people safe. That's the idea of taxes, is for evil to be dealt with. I think it's also important for governments to to look from a biblical perspective and go, what's the right level of tax and what's the the purpose of tax? Verse 7, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Ultimately, we fear and honor God. That's why we can honor these positions that God has set up. We're not honoring them above the Lord. We're honoring them underneath the Lord. They also asked Jesus this question about taxes in Matthew 22. And they said, should we pay taxes? And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus hit it right on the money. (laughs) Hit the issue directly. Well, go ahead, pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but you need to give to God what's God's. And he held a coin when he answered this question. He says, whose image is on this coin? And they say, Caesar's. And then he's saying, well, what image are you made in? You're made in the image of God. So what is the just thing to render to God? Render to God everything. Render to God your your whole entire being and render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I've known believers over the years that say, you know, I don't pay taxes because I don't think taxes are biblical. And they go on and they give this argument on why they don't think biblically that they're required to pay taxes. I think that's a really hard one to get out of because of verses like this and because of what the government Jesus was dealing with and the government that Paul was dealing with. These were not just governments. This is the Roman Empire, but God says, okay, render this unto the Lord. Difficult things for us to wrestle with, just what we wanted to wrestle with on spring break is the subject of of government. Before we move on to loving one another, I want to just plant this in your heart and in your mind. It's one of the things that Paul did not have the opportunity to be a part of was a democracy. The Roman Empire was not a democracy. We have the opportunity to be a part of a democracy. And your vote actually counts. And there's been some laws in Colorado that have been extremely close. We legalized marijuana by 2%. 51% were in favor, 49% were against it. The votes matter, and they really matter. We get to elect our president. That's what we get to do. And I'm not telling you who to vote for, but I do think that we're stewards of every aspect of our life. So everything that God gives to us, he's saying, how did you use it? Okay, you were an American and you had access to education. How did you use it? You knew how to read. How did you use it? Did you study my word? These are the abilities I give to you. How did you use it? Oh, you were an American and you had the freedom to vote. How did you use it? And again, depending on your personality, it might not be the most exciting thing to do. You might be going, I could, I could really care less and do I really want to take all this time to figure out who to vote for, and it's worth it. It's worth it for our city. It's worth it for future generations. It's worth it to your own benefit. And Proverbs talks about what happens to a group of people when they have wicked rulers and when they have righteous rulers, so that the best that we can, we want to take a candidate, 
We want to find out where they stand, how they voted, how they've lived their lives, if it lines up with scripture, and vote those people into office. And we have that ability to, to be able to do it. So get involved in the process. You know, vote. You, God's given you that freedom and that ability to be able to do that. And ultimately, it's in, it's in the Lord's hands, but we should take advantage of the freedom that we've been, been given. So now let's look at the second thing. We've first looked at submission to government authorities, and now we look at loving our neighbor. In verse 8, Owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Our debt should be to love one another. One of the things that this verse addresses is how loans can affect relationships. How many times has there been a close friendship or a friendship with family and you borrow some money from family and you realize it came with about 10,000 strings attached? Like, oh man, that just severely clouded that relationship. You know, or you loan a family member money and there's no strings attached, but there's a payment plan that's put in place and they don't follow the payment plan. And then how do you handle that? Because they're family, you know? How do you handle that? Because that's a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister. And, and it really then can put walls up in a relationship. So there's wisdom here saying, don't be in the position where you owe anybody anything so that it equips you to be able to love. That our debt should be to love one another. Proverbs 22 verse 7 says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a servant to the lender. There's wisdom here in living inside of your means and what the Lord has provided. It leads to ultimate freedom. What's the purpose of that freedom though? The purpose of debt-free living isn't for selfishness. The purpose of debt-free living is so that we're enabled to love in a greater degree. And there's not anything standing between relationships. And then the end of verse 8, it says, For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. The law, it's immense. You go back and you read the first five books of the Old Testament. And it can be summed up in one word, four letters, love. Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets hang on two things. To love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. So think about that for, mo for a moment. All the commandments... Everything is, is summed up in one thing. It's love. Love God with everything you are, with your mind, with your heart, your soul, your strength, that vertical relationship, that vertical relationship with God, everything hinges off of that. We can't get human relationships right unless our relationship with God is right. Agreed? So that's where we start saying, God, I want to love you and understanding your love and your grace and responding to it. And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's what this scripture encourages us to do, to love our, our neighbor. And in doing that, the law is fulfilled. Jesus hung upon the cross, and he hung upon the cross based on love. So not only are the commandments hung on love, but Christ hung through love as well. He was loving his father, and he was loving his neighbor as himself. This is the attribute that we aspire to through a relationship with God and the knowledge of God. If you're wondering, what's the Christian life all about? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? How is this fleshed out? How is worship lived out in a daily basis? It's to love those people that God puts around you at every given moment. This is not ethereal. It's not up in the clouds. It's very practical. 
Who's in your life? Who's in your life the most? (laughs) Who's in your life even for just a brief moment and endeavor to to love them? And as we do that, then the law is fulfilled. Look at verse 9. For the commandments, he's given an example of how the commandments are fulfilled in love. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's look at some of these commandments. Adultery, it's the absence of love, isn't it? And it's the presence of selfishness. When adultery is committed, it's a selfish act. Murder, murder is the absence of love. Can we agree on that? All societies agree on that. It's the absence of love. And what is present? What's the driving motivation there? Selfishness when murder takes place. False witness. To just run someone's character under the bus. Give the right information but the wrong implication. We're doing it on purpose to destroy them. It's the absence of love and the presence of selfishness. Covetousness is saying, I'm jealous that you have it and I want it. It sure sounds like an absence of love, doesn't it? So all of these things really start to break down and goes on to say then it's all summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. How would you like to be treated? What are the needs that you appreciate in your own life? I heard one author put it this way. I know that I enjoy eating at least three times a day. So I would assume that the people I'm around would enjoy the same thing. So if I have someone in my life that can't get three meals a day, to love them as I love myself would be to help them out with some food. I really enjoy having a roof over my head. I really enjoy a bed to to sleep in. So if my neighbor doesn't have that, to love them as myself, I would help to provide that if, if I was able to. I think then to make this more personal inside of our homes, if you're single and you have a roommate, you know, if you're, you're married, your spouse, your, your kids, the people that are in your, your inner circle, what are the things that you enjoy in the morning? You know, I enjoy coffee first thing in the morning. Can I get an amen? Yeah. I know my wife enjoys some coffee first thing in the morning. And so to love her as I would love myself would be to bring her some coffee, to, to make, make some coffee. You know, I don't really necessarily like waking up to grumpiness. That's not something that I really, I I don't really want to see you first thing in the morning if you're extremely grumpy. But yet I can be grumpy first thing in the morning. So if I want to love my family as I would like to be loved, then I need to try to be cheerful in the morning. It's great to see you. Good morning. How you doing? Did, Did you sleep well? Now, sometimes our Sinful flesh can provoke this a little bit, right? If someone in our family is all groggy, then we want to sing them a song and be really loud just to irritate them. <laughs> the Proverbs addresses that as well, right? So, so how do you want to be treated? How, how do, you, do you like to be cared for? Start to care for other people in, in this same way. The scripture is not saying that you need to learn how to love yourself so that you can love someone else. The implication of this is you already know how to love yourself, Deep down, we really do take care of our own needs. There's self-preservation that's built in, in, inside of us. And so the way that we care for our own being is we start to, to care for others. And this, if you miss the first part of our study, the first 11 chapters 
of Romans. This is all because God has so freely done this for us. We're going to miss something very huge and paramount if we're not connecting with, rejoicing in, understanding God's love for us. Because this isn't another sermon on you better love. This is a sermon to say you are loved. God created you. He died for you. His son rose for you. You're justified. You're robed in Christ's righteousness. Now love the way that you've been loved. So we're going to have a hard time loving if we haven't experienced and the love of God present in our lives. I love the simplicity and the clarity of verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So if anything that I'm doing harms a neighbor, it's not love. If it's bringing destruction to them, it's not love. If the way that I'm talking to them is destroying them instead of building them up, it's not love. So that's a great clarity for love. It does no harm. And once again, the love fulfills the law of God. In verse 11, we now move to our third topic. And for whatever reason, Paul presses in here with some urgency as he's challenging the readers of this letter to wake up. So they're reading the letter. This letter's being read aloud to them. Paul's challenging them, okay, you know God's mercy, you know God's grace, now respond to it. If he's challenging us to do that, that means that we could know God's grace but not respond to it. We could know the goodness of God but then not present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And now he's saying, okay, church, make sure you're not asleep. Make sure you wake up. Make sure you're engaged with the Lord and the world that you live in. So there's a spiritual condition that we can be in called sleep. It's not that we're not saved. It's not that we're not the child of God. It doesn't say that we're lost. It just says that we're not asleep. I think this is what Satan endeavors to do once he realizes he's lost us to the kingdom of God. Okay, you're saved. Okay, you're the child of God. I can't you get you to recant on that commitment to Christ. Now I'm going to try to get you to sleep. Now I'm going to try to get you to the place where you're no threat to Satan's camp, to Satan's enemy, where we're just going to kind of cruise through life in this place of spiritual sleep. So let's look at it. Verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, and now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer when we first believed. This is something we're to do. Do this. Why? Knowing the time. This argument that Paul gives is built upon the concept of time. You don't have all of the time in the world. I'm sure you've had this experience where you've walked through life with someone and then all of a sudden things change and you realize, oh, I should have taken advantage of the time that I had with them more. Maybe it's a a child growing up in your home and you blink your eyes and they're 18 years old, 20 years old, moving out of the house. You're like, wow, I wish I would have redeemed that time a little bit better. I had one of those kind of just thoughts today. We got together as a staff at at one and Pastor Kent Nolly, he's and his family are moving to Uganda, to the mission field. And they're departing at the end of June, but he's going off staff on Tuesday, April 1st. So it's not an April Fool's joke. It's really happening. But April Fool's Day is his last day. So we got together today and had some coffee and cake for him. And, and I've known Kent for almost 15 years now. 
And he's a really close friend, friend of mine. And we were just talking about all the experiences that God has blessed us with over the last 15 years. And there was just an aspect of going, wow, I'm going to really miss him, miss his friendship. And it's not that I didn't take advantage of the time, but maybe I would have taken advantage of it a little bit more. And I know we'll continue in friendship and it's bittersweet because I'm really excited about the mission in Uganda, but really bummed to not see him more and, and be connected as we are serving, you know, just a, an office apart here upstairs. But I think we can all relate. There's something where we go, okay, there's a time factor here. You know, for 15 years, things have relatively been the same with Kent. He's around, I'm around, we're enjoying friendship. And then at the end of June, boom, he's going get, to get on a plane. And if I want to go grab coffee with Kent, it's not going to happen very easily. You know what I'm saying? And so we can be kind of unaware of this issue of time that's happening around us. And time is moving in two areas, two quadrants, if you would. One, our own personal time of our lives. And then also time for all of humanity. God's referring to this time when our salvation is near, where Christ is going to return, where time's up for all of humanity, and then also personally, we face that as well. If we die before the rapture of the church, time is very relative. You think if you're talking to a five-year-old, one year is a huge deal because it's one-fifth of their life. But when you're talking to a 50-year-old, what do, they, what do we say? What do you say? Oh, that year was so fast. Why? Because it was one fiftieth of your life. It's all a matter of, of perspective. It's happening so quickly. And so the scripture encourages us, know the time. Know the time. Know that Christ is going to return. Know that your life here is limited. You have an expiration date stamped on you somewhere of when you're going to pass away. The mystery is only God knows that date when you're going to expire. So in light of this, that time is short, it's high time to wake out of our sleep. It's, it's more than time to be engaged spiritually for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Absolutely true. We're closer to seeing Christ personally. Christ's coming is closer, so it's time to wake up. We can't speak when we're asleep, or if we do speak when we're asleep... It's not very legible. It's not very understandable. I'm a sleepwalker and a sleep talker. So I do speak when I sleep. It's just doesn't make any sense. A lot of times I'm worried that somebody's coming over to the house and I need to get dressed. But <laughs> we can't hear when we're asleep. We can't walk when we're asleep, at least not very well. We can't sing when we're asleep. I'd like to hear you try, you know. Can't think when, when we're asleep to the same capacity. So you get the analogy spiritually. If we're asleep spiritually, we can't hear the things that God wants to speak to us. We can't say the things that God wants us to say. We can't worship the way that God wants us to worship. We're, we're comatose. We've missed it. Could it possibly be tonight that there's an alarm going off in your life that God is sending saying, wake up, wake up. You're asleep spiritually. You're not dead spiritually. You're not lost spiritually. You're just asleep. You're not aware of the time and how important it is 
and what you should, should be living for. And you've been hearing it for a while. It's been going off for a while. And you even hit the snooze button. Okay, I'll, I'll wake up in 10 minutes. In 10 more days, I'll wake up. I'm going to engage in my relationship with the Lord. I'm going to put Christ first. In 10 weeks, I'm going to wake up and hit the snooze button back to sleep. Tonight's the night to respond to it. Do I hear the alarm? Am I hitting the snooze button? Verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. We're close to Christ's return. This is a reason to be awake. When Christ's return, when our salvation happens through the rapture of the church, when he catches the church up to forever be with the Lord, or when we die, I want to be awake spiritually. What if tonight's a night that I'm going to go home to be with the Lord? I want to go home alive spiritually. I want to go home going, wow, Christ, it is so great to see you. I was just hanging out with you a second ago. I was just worshiping you a moment ago. I don't want to die when I'm being a knucklehead. I don't want to die when I'm being a sinful jerk and it happens, you know? I don't want to die in that place. I don't want to die in that place where I'm not hearing God's voice, where I'm asleep spiritually. I want to, I want to be in that place where I'm finishing strong. The night's far spent, the day's at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the work of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So it shows us what it means to be awake spiritually. We're going to be asleep spiritually if we're walking in darkness, if we're walking in sin, if we're walking in rebellion. So cast it off. The idea is like casting off old clothes. You're doing some work out in the yard. You're doing some work with cattle and in the mud and Maybe you're out hunting and your clothes are nasty and it's time to just cast those off. And that's the idea. There's these works of darkness that God wants us to reject. Tonight we go, this doesn't need to be a part of my life. And then put on the whole armor of God. And Ephesians 5, if you want to study this more, gives a detailed account of the armor of God. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of truth, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, loins girded with truth feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, saying, I'm living in the armor of God. I realize I'm in a spiritual battle and I want to be prepared for it. How many police officers, how many soldiers would go to battle without the proper armor? But how many times do we as Christians walk around without the proper armor? So we put off the works of darkness. We put on the armor of light In verse 13, but let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lusts, not in strife and envy. So we're not to be in a place of fighting. We're to be in a place of walking properly or walking in a godly manner, not walking in drunkenness. You know, why is it wrong to be drunk? You know, why is it wrong to be in a place where a person is you know, consumed with, with marijuana or some, some other substance because it alters our state to the place where the Holy Spirit can't lead us. We don't want to be in that place at the coming of the Lord. Let go of the drunkenness, not in lewdness. The idea of lewdness is someone who's lost shame. There's no more shame in the sin any longer. And so we want to cast off the, the lewdness and lust and longing for things that God hasn't provided in strife and envy letting go of those fights, letting go of that that jealousy. And then I love verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision 
for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So we put on the armor, but God makes it even more specific and practical. He says, put on Jesus. Put him on. You're casting off the work of, of darkness and I'm robing myself in Christ's righteousness. So what would this look like to put on Jesus Christ? Well, one, it would be reminded of his forgiveness. God, I'm putting you on today. I'm robed in your, your righteousness. Christ, I know that you're kind. I'm putting on your kindness. Lord, I know you're gentle, so I'm putting on your gentleness today. I know you're near. You're Emmanuel, God with us, so I'm putting on your, your nearness today. Being robed in, in his righteousness. It's a conscious decision, and it's part of being awake spiritually. And then the next thing after we put on the Lord Jesus Christ is don't feed the flesh. If we feed the flesh, the flesh is going to win out in this battle with sin and temptation. But if we feed the spirit, the spirit's going to win out. So in any way are we providing for our sinful flesh? I'm just going to use this as an example. Say the battle is pornography and lust. You're saying, okay, I'm just going to leave the door open for pornography and lust. I know that this is the area where I always get tripped up. And so instead of making no provision from the flesh and eliminating that from my life, I'm going to go ahead and keep open, open access there. And then maybe instead of really dealing with our thought life and our heart, we just kind of leave that area of our, our life undealt with. And we go, well, well, it's just thoughts. Maybe there's even some things that you look at and you go, well, it's not full on pornography, but it's feeding the flesh. That's the exact opposite of what God's word's saying. If that's the battle, no, make no provision for it. Don't feed it. Don't play into it. Say, okay, I'm going to cut it off at the very source, at the roots. I'm going to turn away and turn to the Lord. I'm casting off that works of darkness and drawing near to him. I think we know our areas of struggle. All of us. We all have them. I have them. You have them. Everybody has them. Say, okay, I know th these are the top two. These are the top three. These are the things that, that trip me up. And I'm not going to make provision for it. I'm not going to justify it to fulfill its lust. And then this is where the chapter ends and, and leaves us with this powerful punch. So there's three questions for us tonight as we go our way. And the first is this, am I submitting? Am I submitting? Well, that word's not in my dictionary. I don't do that because I'm a strong, powerful person and I've worked really hard in my life so that I don't ever have to submit to anyone. Submit to God. Submit to God. And the way you submit to God is by submitting to the authority that he's placed in your life. As long as the government's not asking us to do things that are unbiblical or unmoral, we need to be in that place of submitting. Am I loving? Very simple question. Am I loving? Am I loving my neighbor? How am I treating the people that are around me? There's an interesting book title. I don't know that I have it perfectly right, but Linda Dillow, I haven't read the book, has written a book that simply says, what's it like to be married to me? That's kind of the idea. We carry it in the bookstore. And even that question, without reading the book, dives into, am I loving? You know, what's it like to have me as a dad? What's it like to work with me? What's it like to be married to me? What, what's it like to be in pro, close proximity to me? If you want to know the answer to this question, am I loving, start to look at how some of those people are, are feeling about us. Be careful. And then finally, am I awake? 
Am I walking in darkness or in the light, making provision for the flesh? As I close tonight, I I just want to kind of talk on a heart level. This is what I sense and what I struggle with, and I think you probably do too, is culture is going to rock us to sleep spiritually every single time, every single time. It's the nature of our particular culture. You've probably heard the analogy where you put a frog into a kettle of of water, and how do you keep them from jumping out? If you just put them into a hot skillet, they're going to jump out. So what they do is you put them into lukewarm water that they're used to and heat it up real slowly. And they're dead gradually. They, They don't even realize I'm caught in this hot boiling water. And that's what Satan uses to get us to a place where we're asleep spiritually. The culture we live in. And he turns it up really slow, doesn't he? And before we realize it, we go, man, I don't care for the things of God like I used to. And to be awake spiritually in my own soul is something I have to fight for. Because what'll just seem to naturally happen without even me trying to do anything is I'll just start to go back to this place. So it's constantly saying, Lord, wake me up. I wanna live for you. I wanna live for you. I wanna live for you. And as we take communion tonight, the opportunity is to spend time with the Lord, draw near to God. God, I wanna hear your voice. But I want you to know tonight that I love you. God, I don't want to be in this place where I'm asleep spiritually. I want to be awake to you. So Father, we do pray for that tonight. Lord, you know my heart. You know our hearts. God, it's so easy to get to that place where we're just asleep spiritually. So God, would you wake us up? Lord, we want to take this chance as well tonight to pray for our government, to pray for our president. Lord, we pray that they would know you, that they would turn to you, that they would make godly decisions. Lord, we pray by your grace and mercy that you would raise up good godly leaders. More than anything else, we pray for a spiritual revival in our country. God, help us to love because we're loved by you. Would you meet us in communion tonight? In Jesus' name, amen.